Good morning. Am I on? I am. All right. Good morning. Uh, not rhetorical. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, I am uh, one of the pastors at Soma Downtown, which we just moved into our building this year. We have, we did six and a half years. Yeah, you can clap for that too. I see that hand. I see that hand. Yes, exactly. Let's get charismatic today. Um, so we were, yeah, six and a half years set up and tear down. And then plus I was at the beginning of so like, you know, you're all just like, you're the new guy. No, I was before most of you. All right. It was like, uh, me and the Ringos were like the only people around here for a while. Uh, if you don't know them, the wonderful family, meet them either way. Uh, and then, yeah, we have been moving in since Palm Sunday to this hundred year old church building used to be formerly the Westminster Presbyterian church, a big staple of the Holy Cross Westminster Willard Park area uh, historically, so that's been cool. Someone downtown I know functions um, to you guys sometimes like the others from Lost, uh, which uh, is a dated reference, but you know, my microphone, my references, so we get used to that. But uh, yeah, we're kind of mysterious, we're in this other place, and every once in a while we abduct one of you and you never see them again. And uh, we like it that way. And Either way, we also find ourselves hugely grateful and indebted because of Soma Midtown, because you guys, whether you know it or not, launched us out seven years ago in 2015, fall, and it's now, with being fully planted in the neighborhood after years of being in a community center, while it was great to connect with people in our homes, just the amount of, that we've gotten to do with organizations like Arsenal Tech, Young Life, uh, who comes over, brings a bunch of kids every Monday, uh, and plays foosball and ping pong, and now newly an old PS4 uh, in our basement every afternoon until campaigners uh, or, or club, uh, if you're familiar with the ministry. And getting to do things like Moms Connect, or I was telling someone, we even have a woman who has a bunch of relationships with Muslim women and like, found out that they all have the secret desire to do Zumba. So she's become a Zumba instructor and they're asking if we can do Zumba in our little basement gym. It's, gym is generous. And either way, it's a basement room with basketball hoops. Uh, and a crossbar that goes right across. No Steph Curry in this situation. Either way, uh, asked if she could like have a time where we had all the men stay out of the basement, and she taught with Soma women and uh, Muslim women, just Zumba, and we're like, we got a building, let's do it. So uh, internally, we're calling it Haram Zumba because Haram is the word for sinful and evil, and so it's kind of fun, you know? Um, either way, uh, don't advertise it publicly that way, please. Uh, but, uh, you know what, why not? We're edgy. All right. Well, so in this series, uh, Delighting in the Trinity, again, we've all been decided, we got together, uh, all those who teach at SOMA, at the respective churches, not campuses, thank you, and uh, we got together to form this, this series together in a way to say, how can we reflect in the season of Advent on an invitation into a family. And I think of, for whatever reason, maybe it's because my children have just reached a crucial age in which they have now been invited and introduced into the wizarding world of Harry Potter. And the oldest two can track along with the book. Um, though they're asking lots of questions about what does this mean, like, you know, what's a boot in a car? I'm like, I don't really know. Uh, but either way, uh, they are tracking and they're loving it, and we're just reading the first book with them now. We read about a chapter a night, and I'm meditating on Harry Potter as I meditate on Delighting in the Trinity, and as I have, I recognize it's interesting that, like Harry Potter, you and I function in a world where we primarily believe a lie. The first 11 years of Harry Potter's life, he is shoved into a closet under the stairway, given socks, if anything, for holidays and for birthdays, and often treated as, at best, an afterthought, and at worst, a punching bag. And yes, because Harry Potter is a children's series, we all, you know, take it that he's just, you know, pleasantly aloof to all this, and, you know, he just never misses a step, and like, oh, well, I didn't like the Dursleys anyway. But we know if 
this were to be a real-life scenario, and if you are familiar with kids who have experienced anything like that in a real-life scenario, they are not pleasantly aloof. It's a deeply identity-shaping reality to be ignored, to be neglected. And you begin to believe lies about who you are. And you begin to believe you are unloved, and not only that, you're unlovable. This is actually the language of Patrick Carnes, uh, who is one of the leading thinkers on addiction. Um, secular thinker, as far as I know, and it's interesting what he writes about the foundation of addiction. He writes it is that there's certain core beliefs that generally addicts do not perceive themselves as worthwhile persons, nor do they believe that other people would care for them or meet their needs if everything was known about them. Another way that he puts it is that they feel like they're unloved and they're unlovable. And that's kind of like the atmosphere that we surround ourselves in. Or not surround ourselves in, we just woke up to. Maybe you wouldn't phrase it that way. But I'm guessing most of you rarely wake up to a sense that you are secure and loved and at peace and invited into deep joy. And if you're like me, I tend to start my day or even end my day in much of a place of stress and anxiety and in certain seasons, very painful depression and fear and loneliness. And even the most well-adjusted amongst us has that. Everyone has imposter syndrome. I don't know if you know that, by the way. I know you're just like, wow, how does he know my inner desires? It's because you are human, and you experience it like everyone. And just like reflecting back to Harry Potter, how he's in this environment where he's told a lie about who he is, but yet he begins to receive letters. And these letters begin to start to indicate to him that there is another reality. And then the letters keep coming and because he doesn't get to open them because they won't let him and they keep coming and coming and coming. They're trying to run from him. And then eventually, Dumbledore and Hagrid and McGonagall, if you don't know who these people are, don't worry, generally know they're wizards. And <laughs> they get together and they hatch this plan to rescue Harry from the lies that he believes and from the world that he believes that he's in and realize that's a fake reality. It's a facade. My anxious, stressed, lonely, depressed at times self is a fake reality. It doesn't mean I don't experience it as extremely real at the time. I'm not trying to like slough it under the rug but it's a fake reality. It's not the most foundationally true reality. It's maybe a better way to say it. And so then Harry all of a sudden gets rescued out and he gets invited into this world in which he all of a sudden has a deep family and his friends the Weasleys and he gets stopped on the street and people shake his hand and hug him and become tearful because he learns it wasn't just he was an afterthought underneath the stairs this whole time. He actually is a beloved member of a community that is joyful and loving. See, that's a lot of what we're pressing into when we talked about last week delighting in the Trinity because our God is unique in the fact that the scriptures reveal him to be one being. God is one. That is the heartbeat of the scriptures. And yet we learn throughout time there's this mysterious way in which he reveals himself in three persons. And so we try to make sense of it, but let me disabuse you of this idea. If you have received a metaphor or an analogy that like, finally made the Trinity make sense to you, that is a false analogy, and you believed a lie. And because there's no way 
to conceptualize of it with our finite, tiny brains. If you understand the Trinity, you do not understand the Trinity. If you do not understand the Trinity, conversely, you do understand the Trinity. Uh, so that's fun. Um, that's how I experienced a few classes in college. And either way, I find myself reflecting on the idea that this three-person Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, they don't just rescue us away from a lie. They rescue us into what they've been doing for eternity, which is enjoying life and community to the full. I'm Maybe you've been in a moment like this, or maybe you've at least watched it on TV. I observed them through the show Parenthood. Again, data references, I don't care. And in Parenthood, like any Jason Kadem show, Jason Kadem was uh, a television producer and showrunner. He makes great uh, off, uh, contributions to the television world, such as Friday Night Lights, and Rise, which apparently the world was not as interested in as I was, so we didn't get to find out what happened in season two of that one. But regardless, Parenthood went, I don't know, six, seven seasons to that effect. And essentially, the story is a, this matriarch and patriarch of a family who then have four adult children, and these four adult children now have children, and they are, yes, learning how to parent together, but they also just regularly show, again, very classic uh, Jason Kadem uh, style here, of at the end, typically, of the episode, they slow down the pace, and it's set to music. And typically for this show, it was around a dinner table, and you see the family, and they're enjoying each other, and they're laughing, and, yeah, maybe they tease each other, but it's not like that biting, satirical things that you want to say to your parents, but you never can like you do. But it's this life-giving sense of they securely feel loved. And they show times where they go out and play baseball together, and they encourage the young and the weak amongst them. And you just get this sense of, like, this is the family that I want. This is this experience of feeling so secure and joyful with my people. And the Father, Son, and Spirit have been experiencing this for eternity and continue to experience this. And you want that because you were designed to be in that that the beginning of reality was God saying, man, it doesn't make sense to be this fine. We need to, like, breast it out. And, like, there's just a simple overflow of love and joy and life that bursts out and it becomes a universe. And then God distinctly says, let's make man and woman and give them the imago Dei, the image of God, and let them come and be a part of this with us. But now you and I live thousands and thousands of years from that moment under a lie that we are unloved and we're unlovable. And the heartbeat of our series is reflecting how each part of the Trinity initiated this grand master plan known as the advent, the coming, in order to rescue us into this reality. Because here's the big thing that I, I really want downtown to get and I want you to get too. I won't get to say it to you every week, so you just have to remember this. Um, the Trinity is not a theological concept to be understood. It is a reality of eternally sacrificial, life-giving love that holds the fabric of the universe together, and it wants you to be a part. So to reflect this week, I get the joy 
to reflect on the first person of the Trinity. And I don't know what name or thought or concept or attributes you assign to the first person of the Trinity. Typically, a lot of times we assign um, ones that have to do with glory and power, like, you know, uh, the Ancient of Days or uh, the Alpha and Omega or the Great I Am, which actually those refer to the entirety of the Godhead as one and are not primarily way, the way that the first person of the Trinity refers to himself. It's confusing because he's not actually male, but we do refer to him in a concept of a father. And he says, hey, how I relate to you is a father. And again, he's not male. He didn't make man to image his glory any more than he made woman to image his glory. And so when he says, hey, I want you to think of me like a father, he's getting at specific connotations that they understood and that we a lot of times understand as well. The ways that you just think of a father, a couple attributes I think that you could pull out is a father is an origin. Everything comes from, particularly in the ancient Near Eastern world, the father. That's why genealogies started with a father who then begat a father and then begat a father. And it wasn't this to neglect the mother. In fact, a lot of times in Christian genealogies, mothers actually made it in as a sign of respect and dignity to them. But it was rather to say, no, there is this generational thing that we adhere to that it all came from this life-giving source that spilled out. And it's pointing back to God, who is in Ephesians 3, said to be the father of all. It says, for you, uh, from you, is every family in heaven and earth is named. It says, everything comes from him. You are the origin of all of the good and the beautiful and the true. That out of your beauty comes Mount Everest and the Marianas Trench and the rings of Saturn and stuff that we're now getting from telescopes that we have never seen before in sacrificial life-giving relationships, a friend laying down their life for another, the feeling you feel when you see the room of people who are completely secure with peace and love with one another. Not only do you get origin from the connotation of father, you get power and strength. Of all the ways that cultures have extrapolated what scripture says about the difference between male and female, most of them are probably pretty cultural. But there is one, and I could go to both, but for the sake of time, I'm only going to focus on the one that is distinct over all the scriptures of the distinction of what a male is and how they are different from female. And that is, men are created and designed to be physically stronger. Now, that is physically stronger, that is not emotionally stronger, that is not theologically stronger, intellectually stronger, by no means. But physically stronger, with noted exceptions, is generally the reality. And that idea of a father is meant to connote an idea of physical protective strength, one that holds a family together, protects a family, protects the vulnerable, raises up the weak, serves those, makes themselves last so that the family might flourish. Origin, power and strength, also authority. This is ancient Near Eastern culture. It's highly patriarchal. Think what you will about it, but back then, no suffrage movements could be had. It just wasn't a thing. And so you had an extremely patriarchal culture, and so when God calls himself a father, he's not necessarily saying this is the way that it is, but he is saying this much, that in your culture, think of me as one who has all authority. The patriarch had all authority of the inheritance, all authority of the property, all authority of the family, and God's saying, I'm like one who has all authority. But unlike every broken, sinful one of you fathers who has in big or small ways, corrupted that. I hold it with mercy and justice and truth and love. And so you have origin, you have strength, power, you have authority. 
But the last one is you have love. A father is meant to give the image of loving his children. I remember uh, they were uh, members here at one point, some of Midtown, and it was a friend, mentor figure who uh, was much older than I. And when we had our first child in 2014, he had kids that were already in college at that point. And he just emailed me, like, day two of being a parent. And when I checked my email, I see a message. And it's just a simple, you know, congratulations. You know, I heard and I'm excited for you. And he just put a one single sentence in the rest of the letter, and it said, the love of the Father will always be different to you now. And it made me just sit there with, you know, a new baby who, you know, does the thing where they hold on to your finger really stinking tight, and you're like, wow, you actually got some strength there. And, but yet, it's also this sense of desperation and helplessness. And yeah, you like start to like, you know, all the things just sound cloying, like I'd give my life for them. Like, of course I would. Or, yeah, they, I just love them with so much. Like, you use these words and you just feel like, man, the English language is bankrupt for meaning to be able to explain that I love this child. And yes, mothers too. But it was meant to have the connotation of love. And I'm guessing if I passed a test out under your seats today, not there. Uh, but if I did, and it was just one question, God loves me, true or false? I bet you could answer that right. I bet you intellectually understand that to be true. But my experience of feeling caught up in lies and anxiety and fear and anger and loneliness testify to the reality that I functionally believe a very different thing. Because when you experience the reality that I am fully loved, fully secure, fully sought after, again, I... I can say that to me, like, I am loved just as I am. There's nothing I have done to uh, dissuade God from loving me, nothing I could do that would make him love me any less, nothing I can do to make him love me anymore. But my felt reality is, I better kill this next teaching. I had better figure out what to do with the budget of a new church building so that people feel like, oh, there's so much life and vision and we're doing so well. Or I just don't like the way that I look. I wish this were different about my body, my face, my traits. I'm guessing I'm not the only one. And so, there's a lot of reasons why we don't experience the Father's love. One of them that we should note. A lot of us have had some level of a flawed earthly father. And some more than others. Some, it's been an abusive father or an absent emotionally or an absent physically, because he was just killing it at work. Or an antagonistic father that, for whatever reason, experienced the lies and the anxiety and the fear and had never had anyone tell him any differently, and so he is hell-bent on passing that forward to his children. Or some of you are just, man, your, your dad was amazing, but he's gone now, and he's been gone for a while, or it's a new reality that you're setting into, and Christmas is kind of a weird time to be processing that. 
whatever reason, and some of you had not perfect, but pretty good dads, and they were really loving, and they were really encouraging, and they sought with all they had to, could to serve you and to apologize when they're wrong, and praise Jesus that those men exist, that there have been men like that who have seen me and seen my insecurities and poured into me. And you too, I'm guessing, a number of you, but again, there's just something in this that the the atmospheric lies tend to drag out of me. And so, what if at the beginning of December, in the time where it's going to, if it hasn't already, get stupid crazy about stuff that you have to do, stuff that you want to do, stuff that your kids want to do that you don't want to do, but you're going to do, and then all the things that your family has puts upon you, or the multiple Christmases, multiple, some of you, I, I got a Thanksgiving celebration next week, I haven't passed that on, so I'm still going to that, and as we do that, while it's very fun and joyful and good, maybe there's a time to just like take a breath this morning and meditate on the reality of a father who so loved you that he initiated a plan to give a son so that you might inherit all of his love and community. So that's simply what I want to do today. I want to recognize that though we live in desperation and fear and stress, that ultimately we're missing this grand narrative of the Bible. 1 John 3, 1 says it like this, so what, so what great the Father has, uh, what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that we are. I love, by the way, the, and that we are, because it's like he was writing it, and he just like stirred himself up again. He's like, what great love we have. Oh, and we are, you know, like, it's just like, man, it just caught me again. And because it is crazy, because they're going to talk about it again in Ephesians 2, where he says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. And Jesus, in an intimate moment with his Father, in which he's talking all about his Father, the love that he's had for him for eternity, he just has this moment where he just like says what he really wants, like he says what's on his heart. And it's John 17, 3 through 5, where he says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. What's Jesus' heartbeat the moment before the cross? Is that we would know his Father in the intimacy that he's had from before time. In order to do this, we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. That was my intro. <laughs> we will pick up pace. Ephesians chapter 1. It's on 1036 if you're using the hardback Bible around you. Uh, starting in verse 3, reflecting on God's part in this sent coming that we are recognizing. Verse 3 reads, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has been blessed, or who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. 
I love the phrases that come like spilling out of there. And if you've studied Ephesians before, like been in any sermon, you know that we obligatorily have to point out that it's all just one long run-on sentence for the entirety of chapter one because, you know, Paul is just like so emphatically excited about what's going on. He can't figure out where to stick the punctuation. And it's meant to lead you in this cascading like level of like when you're at the ocean and have a wave hit that, whoa, that one was a little too strong. And another wave hit and you're like, okay, now I'm in trouble. And like the third one and you're like, all right, and you know, call the... Double red flag, please. And either way, it's meant to keep hitting you with phrases like, he chose us before the creation of the world. And he predestined us. That means he set a destiny for us. For the adoption of sons. Quick on that, by the way. If you're like, why does it say sons and daughters? Again, it's actually getting at a type in the ancient Near East. Because the firstborn son got everything, got the full inheritance, then would maybe have through influence or, you know, love of his siblings divvy out and care for them. But he's saying, no, it's not that I'm just calling you all men. He's saying, you're all like the one who gets the full inheritance. You get everything. You're not a lesser version that each one of you, I'm looking to give the full octane level of my presence in my Trinitarian self, and you've come fully into every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Which I know spiritual blessing kind of sounds like you've got all these blessings, but they're invisible. But it's really meant to be more like, no, you have everything in the heavens. And so I just want to draw out a couple observations of what love of the Father looks like. Because again, love can be this very cloying term. We sing it all the time, like how deep the Father's love for us, and oh, there goes, God is love, and oh man, like I know I'm so loved, but we don't have that sense that Paul starts this out where he's like, praise be to the God and Father. It becomes like, praise be to the God and Father. Like, you know, with what great love he has for us, and it's like, what great love we had for us. And so I want to, I want to reflect on love and the Father's love specifically so that we might, if not see it fresh, because sometimes it's like, oh, do I need to have a rapturous new experience? I don't know, maybe. Um, But maybe it's just, no, it's a continual sense of, no, this is what's most true. And I hold on to this even when it doesn't feel like it. A Father's love is many things, and the first one that I think we can point out from this text and others is that a father's love is protective. We already got the sense of strength, power. Um, All myths, all humanity, all times where you've formed a religion, something, the most petrifying, terrifying reality to all of humanity, particularly in an ancient time, has always been the sea. The ocean, it's wild, it's untamable. Whenever you see ocean sea imagery in scriptures, it's usually referring to chaos or fear or uh, destruction. And then within the sea, there was this great sea beast that, again, every myth that we have refers to it. They, some call it the Leviathan, or you got the Kraken, or you got all these different kinds of ways to refer to it. But it's always this great sea beast. And all of the religions have like a story of their God going into mortal battle with the sea beast, with the Leviathan, and vanquishing it and standing over it triumphantly. The book of Job says that God created the Leviathan to frolic. It's like all of the world's greatest fear and every God's mortal enemy is his rubber ducky. And he's just like... Look, it's Leviathan. Like, look at the little guy. He just let him swim. He's fine. And he takes that strength that he dominantly represents and he places it on his children so that people who were following him in Roman oppression could stand up to leaders, could face boldly the reality of being thrown into the Colosseum could be put on stakes and set ablaze to light Nero's parties. Sawn in two, Hebrews says, some of them. And they did it because they recognized, 
A, that if it was not their day to die, that their God created Leviathan to frolic. They weren't worried about Nero. But even if they were to perish, and that's kind of what scares us too. We're like, well, God's so strong, but yet Christians died on stakes and flames, and like that, you know, he could still do that, you know, or if he doesn't do that, at least he could like, you know, certainly cause me to lose my job or my relationship or something, and the anxiety goes on and on and on. But those who realize that God has that amount of strength means there's only one logical conclusion as to why suffering happens. And it's, get this, because he loves you. Now, yes, it's also because sin and consequences are real. And while there's times where I tell my kid, hey, you're fully forgiven, there are still sin and consequences that you will have to experience because those are just, consequences are just the natural reaction of putting chaos into the world. You reap a field of chaos. But God, though he does not create it, he uses it in a redemptive way so that I always see those people who like, they're like in their 70s or 80s or 90s, and they have just like, they are a soul that has dwelt in deep waters, and you see them, and you're just like, gosh, I would, I would kill to live with that level of freedom from anxiety. Now, when I find out how they got there, I don't want that road. Um, <laughs> and you don't either. We all want to be that person. We don't want to get on the path. Uh, nobody wants to click into the roller coaster. But God doesn't care. Lovingly, he doesn't care. And he will use the chaos that you have sown and reap to shape you, to free you, to mature you into one who recognizes God can pick up Leviathan and smush him between his fingers if he wants. Whatever he's doing now is fully meant for my freedom and joy and peace. God's love is protective. Secondly, God's love is a celebrating love. Zephaniah chapter 3 says this, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior, there's that strength, who saves you. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. There's another part in the chapter where it talks about like when my soul comes in the presence of God, it quiets within me. So the inner critic that you're just never able to satisfy is not your father. Even the one that has the religious twist on it, like you should disciple better, you should share your faith more, is not your father, but it is the father of lies. But your father, when you're... You're always in his presence. But when you have received the special grace of experiencing his presence, your soul gets quiet. It's at peace. But he's not quiet. He's singing. He's rejoicing over you. That, to, to nail home this concept of rejoicing over children or being rejoiced over, I think of going to the swimming pool. So... Um, I, uh, I'm from Nebraska originally, and so I vacation in the summers in Lincoln, Nebraska for two weeks where vacations are made. And, um, <laughs> but I go and my grandparents have this just baller Nebraska home that uses square footage like a state that just has space to spare. And uh, we, they also have a pasture in which they have a horse stable, and they back up to this park that's a lot like Southeast Way Park. It's just beautiful, and you can get lost in it for days. And they also have a swimming pool. And we take my kids and just, you know, get there and throw them in for two weeks. And as they do that, or even just another time where daddy gets to show up at the pool, which 
God love you mothers. I mean, you got them dressed in their swimsuits, and you packed the snacks and the pool furniture and the floaties, and you drove them in the car and realized you forgot someone's floaties, so you went back to get those. And then the second time you're going in the car, you hear them screaming that the youngest one peed in their swim diaper, and now it's spilling out like a fountain out of their chair. So you're cleaning that later, and then once you get to the pool, you're like lathering them with sunscreen for about 45 minutes, because it's one at a time, and they won't sit still. And the second one of them gets done, they're like, can I go in yet? And the second you get them in, then it's a constant vigilance to make sure they don't kill themselves. But now daddy's here and we're taking it up a notch and it's fun and a party now and we're excited because there's daddy. And the second you walk onto the premises as daddy, you get daddy. Watch this. Watch this. Don't talk to mom. Don't text it down. Don't, you know, whatever. Like, watch this. And then they go down, they do the jump, you know, I learned how to do a pencil dive, which is just straight. And you know, or I figured out how to like, you know, do a somersault or like I'm rolling around like a log or whatever. And when they come up coughing and sputtering, the first thing once they are, have regained the ability to form language, they say, did you see me? Did you see me? And I remember these moments by my grandparents' pool of just sitting there for like an hour of them doing jumps. Daddy, watch me. The next one, no, Daddy, watch me. Now watch me. Did you see me? And what they want, what they drink in is just to say, you're awesome. You're amazing. Like, look, you couldn't even swim last season, and now you can touch the bottom, and you can come back up, and, and you are amazing to me. And there's something in our soul that just yearns for a love that doesn't just come and sacrifice for me, though that's beautiful, and we'll talk about that in a second, but it celebrates in you. It's not God like doing this because he's like, well, I'm glorious, and it's like to the glory of my name, and so I might as well save these unwashed miscreants. But he's, he delights to do it. Did you see in Ephesians 3, he says, he does it because of the pleasure of his will. He thinks about coming to rescue you and thinks about you joining in with him. And he gets really excited. So much so that he says, it would be my joy to bring that one into our communion. It's the same concept in the prodigal son where you see a father who has been told by his son, I want my inheritance now. You're as good as dead to me. And he goes and he spends it on foolish living and he's eating with the pigs and then he realizes I should at least come back so I can get some like hired money from my father. And his father sees him and while he was a long way off, his father sees him does the most indignifying act at this time, and he runs. You're supposed to play it cool as the patriarch. People come to you. He runs, and he throws him a party. He celebrates over him. Because God's love celebrates. God's love challenges. So my kids break everything. And like the first three are boys and they're all like 17, 18 months apart. And so it's just one of those things where like you come up and like literally the drywall is dented in. The fourth one's a girl, but she's just basically been raised by them. So she's drawing on something. And, like, I just kind of thought, like, I'm, I'm glad that we did have the girl because it was, like, the first, like, realization that not every kid comes out, like, a little miniature Fred Durst from Limp Biscuit who wants to break something tonight, you know? But, like, they actually have self-restraint on some level if they're female. And, but the older three, they do this, and I would like it to stop. I 
and been trying to engender environment where they will see this as not funny, like they currently do, uh, but detrimental to their budget that pays for the stuff that they want. Um, but regardless, as they continually break my stuff, and again, like, with me present and just laugh at it, like, they look at me like, that was pretty cool, huh? And you're like, <laughs> and you have to, like, sit them aside or, you know, take them across and be like, hey, I love you. Um, I, of course, forgive you. Mommy and daddy love you far more than the new leather ottoman. <laughs> and I am going to, in my love, pass the natural consequences on to you. So you are going to rake the entirety of our lot, which in downtown, it's, yeah, okay, we'll say that covers it. And but you're going to do it in a way that you are going to recognize that there is consequence. You have released chaos because I love my kids and I love them right where they're at. If they never change, I will be still there showering them with joy and celebration and consequences. But <laughs> my goal and hope is that they mature. And here's what I've noticed and talking with parents, reading on parenting, and just seeing my own kids, here's what they intrinsically understand. They intrinsically get that to have no boundaries, to have no consequences. Like, yes, they're going to rail and, you know, shake their fist at every single one I give. But you do the opposite, and they start to get the reality. No one really cares what I do. No one really cares if I'm safe. No one is out there to protect me. No one thinks I'm worthy of protection. Kids get that on an intrinsic level. They can't articulate it, but they get it. You get it. That's why sometimes, yeah, I would like to have God absolve me of all the consequences of my sin, but at the same time, Hebrews says, hey, he disciplines you because he loves you. And it's good news. If the fruit of the Spirit is increasingly obtainable in this world, I would like to be filled with more love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I would like that. If you could dial that notch up, I would prefer it. I would like to be one of those deeply unanxious, mature people of saints that have walked deeply with Jesus and feel his love, that don't wake up daily into an anxiety that drives them forward into a world at a hurtling, dissatisfied pace. I would like that. And God, his love does challenge. It also pursues. If you were alive and tracking with national news in the late, mid-late 1980s, then you probably remember baby Jessica McClure and the rescue of baby Jessica. And this was in Midland, Texas in 1987. And what happened was an 18-month-old girl was playing, I believe, in her grandparents' backyard, which in Midland, Texas, again, you just, just send them out there and, you know, they go five miles and they come back and they're tired. And while this 18-month-old was playing in the backyard, she fell into her grandparents' well so deep that the parents come, they hear her down there, they begin, of course, calling the police and digging. And then pretty soon the neighbors catch on and they start digging. And pretty soon it starts to get local news coverage and people from all over Midland, Texas, all over the greater area of just the Western Plains and whatever else is going on over there start showing up, and you have hundreds and even thousands of people that begin carving, or just, yeah, sitting around this house, and they would dig, and they get 
lifts to put lights up so that they can dig during the day and dig all night. And they would dig until a few men were so exhausted that they'd hand over their shovels and give to other men who would dig so long until they became exhausted and handed over their shovels. And it continued on for 56 hours, two days and eight hours to spare. And they could hear her singing. She could hear at the beginning singing nursery rhymes, so they know she's down there. Ronald Reagan, president at the time, says that at this moment, every man and woman became like a godmother and a godfather to baby Jessica. And then there came the moment, as they get close, and they're in that crucial time where they're trying to get down but also not have it collapse in. There are reporters everywhere. One particularly climbs the lift on one of the houses nearby, or in the yards nearby. And you see that moment where, because of the danger of the situation, this group of the entire population is dead silent. The media coverage is silent. And then cheers begin to erupt. And the picture that that man took won the Pulitzer Prize of a community that had lost their daughter and began pursuing and digging and exhausting and setting up cranes and setting up expenses and praying. And people around the nation and around the world began asking and hoping and praying for God to get baby Jessica safe. And when she came, there was a celebration and a joy because love doesn't see you fall in the well and say, well, you reap what you sow. Love pursues. It comes after. God pursues. He doesn't just send resources, but he says, man, I, I'm not just going to send money or send flowers, but I'm going to send for you who's fallen in the well, my son, who I dearly love, who I've been in communion with since before time. But yet, the thought of losing us forever. God comes together with the plan of saying, I pursue after you at the expense of the blood of my son. God so loved the world that he, with pain and sacrifice and joy, gave his only son so that we would not perish but have life with him to the full. Love pursues. Love sacrifices. So with all that, you're like, okay, um, this is cool. But I know me. I know that tomorrow morning the alarm goes off and the lies and the atmosphere of lies are still really loud. And maybe I can get going through Monday with the joy of the love of God in my heart. Or again, maybe it's not even stirring you up now and you're just like, I feel like I'm broken or something. So you're like, how, how do we like, how do I, what do I take from this? How do I grow in this? Two things. One, quick one. I know you guys, along with us, have talked a lot about spiritual formation and spiritual formation, formational practices. A really life-giving practice that I see a lot of people who I see begin to grow into this try regularly, big and small times, finding just times to imaginatively reflect and experience the fact that God loves you. I don't know what you do when you pray. Mother Teresa was once quoted, and she was like, say, he was like she was like, they asked her, like, she was talking about praying every morning. They're like, oh, really? You pray every morning? What do you say to God? And she said, I say nothing. I just listen. And they said, oh, okay, then what does he say to you? He says nothing. He just listens. 
because there was something about her ability just to sit in the presence of a God who loves her that probably didn't start overnight. And yeah, you're like, it's December, Kent. I have no time. I don't know, at traffic lights? <laughs> that just five seconds where you have to just break in between emails? Maybe just with a little bit of the time at the end of the month when it slows down for just a moment and it's quiet and you're waiting for the next day in the dark of the candles. It's just a way to continually find other ways I can reflect. I'll say, Steve Yeager, he's really good at this. I've seen him lead communities of this on the day retreats, which I've been a part of. And um, he's, I think, one who you can tell he's both practiced this and is also passionate about helping people practice this. Secondly, and this is more important, the way that we experience the love of the God, or the love of our Father, is through the body of brothers and sisters. The way, this is why we focus so much on community at Soma, because we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here on Sunday. But Sunday, I always say this to people downtown, it's like date night. My wife and I, we have date night. It's Sunday night. Good for us. And we, you know, get the babysitter, we line it up, we go out, we enjoy food, we talk to each other, because no matter how busy life gets, you have date night, and it's there, and it's just, you know, able to be marked out. You get the budget going, and you make it happen. It's cheaper than counseling. And... <laughs> When I'm at date night, if that's the entirety of the time that I interact and talk with my wife, we have a really toxic marriage. Sunday is date night. It's on the calendar no matter how busy life gets. It's a good practice. Whether you're rejoicing, whether you're mourning, whether you need to be encouraged, whether you want to sing the words to encourage your brothers and sisters, it's date night. If it's all you experience of church, that is a dysfunctional, toxic body. Because the body is meant to do the Monday through Saturday in which we learn the ways that I'm struggling with feeling like I am what I can do. And then the day where I just, I just fail. I mean, I just really blow the whole concept of me being a worthwhile human being in my eyes. And almost feeling that sense where I feel like really disgusted because I just, you know... That's my whole identity. And yet, having the community who was able to know me and step towards me in my vulnerability, maybe I even failed them. And yet, they step towards me. They catch the lies that I'm believing about the disgusting nature of myself, and they say, no, actually, you are fully loved. They do things. They bear my burdens. Did you hear that back in Patrick Carney's quote? So generally, addicts do not perceive themselves as worthwhile persons, nor do they believe that other people would care for them or meet their needs if everything was known about them. One of the most foundational ways you can tell some, or show someone that they are loved and lovable, meet their needs. I get it. We're in church. Everyone's somewhat of an Enneagram too. Nobody has needs, but you do. And you don't want to show them if you do, because it makes you feel worthless. But that's why you have, to, you have to pursue people and find out their needs. When they say that little slight comment that you can tell was actually maybe a little bit of a test, you recognize it and you pass it. I have failed many tests, but I've passed some. Of that moment where people are testing, does this person actually love me? They're pursuing me, but surely they won't meet my needs if I call them at 3 a.m., if I need them in the middle of the workday. Sometimes the most spiritually life-giving thing to communicate the love, not only yourself but to others, is to take off in the middle of the day and bear the burden of another. I know it's time off spent. You do that enough, you will have enough brothers and sisters that will move their lives for you because they have been so filled with the love of the Father that they desire to show it to you. Now, there's many people, I show them all the sorts of love and they say, thanks, cool, and they go on. But there will be some that experience the transformational power of being loved, of feeling loved in their brokenness and vulnerability. And when you feel it, it's like the Trinity of like God flows out life, which then flows onto us, which then flows onto others, which then flows into you, which then you just eagerly want to flow into other people. 
May we delight in the Trinity, not as a theological doctrine to be understood, but as a reality to participate with in a communal experience of love that is eternal and now inviting us to flow out towards others onto affinity. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray for my brothers and sisters at Soma Downtown and Northwest, that Lord, as we reflect on these realities, we would um, be given your spirit and the presence to be able to have that supernatural experience of just sitting in this and experiencing your presence, of letting our souls become quiet like in Zephaniah and hearing you sing over us. And Lord, whether that's something that causes rapturous praise or just a simple, subtle reminder or maybe even putting forward a reality that we're fighting to believe to be true. Lord, let your spirit sow that further to our souls so that it might continually reap a harvest of love that flows towards the brothers and sisters, that flows outward and outward and outward again, like your Trinitarian self infinitely does. A love and a joy that is never ending and invites us to be a part of the infinity. I pray that for us here. In Jesus' name, amen.